Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 2017, Steve Seashan from Buffalo, New York, spent $3 on something he was pretty sure he could have gotten for a dollar. But you never know, sometimes you stumble on something valuable, which in a sense, he did. The $3 bought him a whole bunch of newspapers from 1991 covering the beginning of the Gulf War. Strangely though, it was a huge ad for Radio Shack that caught Seashan's eye. An ad for discounts on camcorders, calculators, alarm clocks, tape recorders. He ended up writing an article about the ad because it hit him that now your smartphone is your calculator, is your alarm clock, is your mobile phone. Is your landline very often? Is your film, let alone your camera? And they've all vanished down into this very lightweight thing that we all carry around with us. Andrew McAfee came across Steve Seashan's story as he was researching a strange phenomenon, one that at first he had trouble believing himself. You have to compare the universe that we currently live in, where the smartphone happened in 2007, to the universe next door where the smartphone never happened. But people still want to drive places. They still want to take pictures. They still want to get up in the morning and have an alarm remind them. In that next door universe, they're still using clock radios and answering machines and tape recorders and camcorders. And that next door universe, that consumption weighs a lot more than our consumption does for the same stuff. McAfee is the co-founder and co-director of the Initiative on the Digital Economy at MIT Sloan School of Management. And he's the author of the book, More from Less, the surprising story of how we learn to prosper using fewer resources and what happens next. A couple of years before Seashan bought those newspapers, McAfee had started looking into the possibility that Americans were consuming less and less stuff all the time. The concept is called dematerialization, and when McAfee began reading scholarly articles saying that it was happening, he knew it didn't make any sense. I just walked around with this viewpoint that as economies grow, as America gets more populous and we get more wealthy as a society, of course we consume more, and of course that increased consumption requires more materials. Duh, that's how economic growth happens. That's the nature of economic growth. But McAfee was wrong. Things had changed and almost nobody was talking about it. For a long time, experts have believed just what McAfee believed. Growth and consumption are linked. About 50 years ago, on the first Earth Day, 1970, many scientists feared that our rapidly growing appetite for stuff was going to do us in. Nobel Prize-winning biologist George Wald predicted that civilization will end within 15 or 30 years unless immediate action is taken against problems facing mankind. At the close of that very first Earth Day, Walter Cronkite summed up his observations on the evening news. Affluent America will, we were told, almost certainly have to scale down its standards of living, give up having as many cars, as many children, as many cans, as many conveniences, as much conspicuous consumption. Since then, of course, conspicuous consumption has done anything but vanish. Amazon packages are everywhere. We fill trash cans with cups from Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts, along with single-use salad and burrito bowls from fast food chains. And that's just scratching the surface. So what? The, how can this possibly be true, especially because our consumption is so 
vivid and immediate to us. I look at the Amazon packages outside my front door and I'm like, we're clearly taking more trees. But we aren't. Consider the case of cardboard, which you'd think we must be using at an unprecedented rate. Andrew McAfee says, as far as he can tell, cardboard usage is lower than it was in 1995. And what is happening is that e-commerce packages are really far from the only use of cardboard in an economy. We, use, we have always used it all up and down our logistics chains, our value chains. And what I think is going on, and I want to be clear, what I have not done is for every resource that makes up the American economy, I haven't written a case study about every single one. But what appears to be going on with cardboard in particular is that we are using less cardboard to ship it from the factory to the wholesaler and maybe less cardboard to ship it from the wholesaler to the retailer. And maybe as physical retail goes down, we're sending less cardboard to all of those stores, even though e-commerce is rising and we are sending more cardboard from Amazon warehouses to our homes. I think, Kara, the problem is that you and I just see that last link in the chain and we don't realize all of the savings at all the previous links in the chain that have added up in, in a pretty big way. And so this phenomenon of dematerialization is a phenomenon of, you know, let's be cute, let's call it life by a thousand cuts, there are all these attempts all over the economy to save on materials. And it's the easiest thing in the world to understand. Materials cost money. Companies would rather not spend that money, especially if they've got tough competition. And so they are trying to find all kinds of clever ways to satisfy their customers while spending less money. In other words, using fewer materials. I think my exhibit A for that is the aluminum can. The modern aluminum can weighs about 20% of what the first generation of aluminum wow. cans, cans did. And that's because when you and I want a beer or we want a soda, we don't value the aluminum at all. The beverage companies would rather save on that spending category. So it makes a ton of sense for them to buy very expensive computer-aided design systems, sit a couple engineers down in front of them and say, figure out how to make that can lighter. That, that's a complete economic no-brainer for them. But I think it's an example of what's happening all over the place these days. And you think about it, it's less aluminum to buy. It's cheaper to ship because it's lighter. It, it, like, it they're not less. really trying to be helpful to the environment. They're just trying to save some cash. That's the point. This is not altruism. This is not corporate social responsibility. This is not our green flavor of the month. This is the hard, cold desire to save some cash when you're running a business. And the story I tell in the book is we fairly recently have developed this astonishing toolkit to help companies spend less money on resources. It's called the digital toolkit. It's called the CAD system or the smartphone or the artificial intelligence system, which are pointed at this task of help me figure out how to save money. Just to underscore the notion of people using less, we talked about less cardboard, but it's a lot of things. It's less aluminum. It's less nickel. It's less copper, steel, gold, fertilizer. It's really incredible that you there were uh, there was a good long time where we used more and more of those things to make more and more stuff. It was called the entire history of the industrial era up it, until pretty recently. Exactly. And a few decades ago, you know, economies kept getting bigger. And we just stopped. We just started using less and less of that stuff. And we should be clear, I'll put a caveat on this, in the rich world. So the, I can talk about AmeriCorps with some confidence because the data is really high quality there. I th 
Somebody else found the same thing was true in the United Kingdom. I looked around at the European data. It's a little more fragmented, but I think some of the same things are going on there. I don't think low-income countries have dematerialized yet. They're still very, very resource-hungry as they're building their economies, building their infrastructure, absolutely. But I think they're going to flip early in their economic history than we flipped because the technology toolkit is so much better for that. Let's go back and talk about paper and cardboard one more time. The year of peak paper in the United States, and when we say paper, we mean paper and cardboard and paperboard all put together. The year of peak paper was 2007. And one really important thing that happened in 2007 was the iPhone was introduced to the world. And to me, that helps me explain a lot. I don't print out maps anymore when I'm driving somewhere. I can't remember the last I time I did I don't either. I used to, though. All the time. Yeah. Uh, even, well, I, even with a computer, I used to print out the map because you couldn't take your laptop or your desktop in the car. So, yeah, you know. so the computer era was different. The smartphone era, we don't print out maps anymore. Uh, I get all kinds of updates from MIT where I work. They don't come in memo form anymore. I think if you go look around most modern offices these days, I've looked around a few pretty recently, you know what you don't see? big old file cabinets full of paper anymore. They just look very different. Knowledge work offices, professional services places, they look different than they used to. There just isn't the huge volume of paper anymore. So I read an estimate that humanity hit peak paper in 2013. Okay. I bet we're, why would we ever go back to a higher number than we had in 2013? We're not gonna spontaneously start printing out maps anymore unless the GPS system goes down. So I think that these plateaus that we're reaching in materials use, I think these are permanent plateaus. So let's go back to Earth Day 1970 that you talk about where people were really worried about the amount of pressure we're putting on the environment. We talked about a couple reasons why uh, in some ways people might be using less materials, but still economies are doing well. Uh, one is that they're just companies are just trying to save money. And the other thing is technology came along and just replaced a bunch of little gadgets we had around into one thing. How much was the environmental movement, which was saying, which was also at the same time saying, there's a lot of things people need to think about now. We need to conserve. We need to reuse the stuff that we have. We need to recycle, you know, the birth of recycling, which has really, really grown in the last few decades. How much has that impacted um, this ability to not use as many materials? I want to talk about the successes of the environmental movement. Before I do that, though, I want to talk about some of the things that they actually got wrong, in my view. And this focus on recycling, I think it's gone too far. I think we are focusing too much on recycling materials. We do not live on a scarce planet. And the other thing to say is that recycling is a separate phenomenon from dematerialization. So recycling is about reusing paper so we don't have to chop down as many trees. Okay, I, that's fine. I, that makes good sense to me. Dematerialization is about decreased demand for paper no matter where it comes from. No matter if that paper comes from chopped down trees or recycled cardboard, we just want less paper overall. The environmental movement did not see dematerialization coming. Almost nobody saw dematerialization coming. But in my eyes, the two great triumphs of the environmental movement were calling our attention to pollution and calling our attention to species depletion and the risk of extinctions. The environmental movement, which sprung up around Earth Day, really put those on the map. And I think without that movement, we would have maybe 
be no more blue whales on the planet. We came so close to wiping them out. And I think our skies and our water and our land would still be so much more polluted than they are now. So all credit where credit is due to the environmental movement who said to their societies, who said to their governments, you have to stop these things. You, we have to put in place measures to avoid pollution. And I love markets. Markets don't take care of pollution on their own typically. And we have to put some animals outside the market. We're going to put the deer outside the market, except for hunting season. We're going to put whales totally outside the market. You just can't traffic in those products. Right. Even if you can make a lot of money by getting an elephant tusk, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Well, you know, sea otters are super cute. Somebody might want a sea otter hat. You're not, you're not going to trade in sea otter products anymore. I am all in favor of those kinds of things. What the environmental movement got wrong, though, was this notion that our growth trajectory itself was going to kill us. That's absolutely not right. We've continued to grow since 1970 while lowering pollution, taking better care of the animals around us, and taking fewer resources from the planet. So let me just contextualize this. We're at a moment where we're using fewer and fewer natural resources, but we're also at a moment where I think a lot of people look around and they think and they see sea levels rising, they see more serious storms. So you know, okay, so maybe the free market is dealing with itself in terms of fewer resources. Maybe cap and trade is a really good sort of free market way of dealing with some of this. But is it happening fast enough to deal with the problems that feel like they're coming on a train track, you know, coming towards us? And sometimes it feels pretty fast. Yeah, almost certainly not. In answer to your question, are we moving fast enough? Almost certainly not. And the instant that I start thinking about all these greenhouse gases that we're pumping into the atmosphere as a form of air pollution, things just fall into place for me because then I know how to think about the problem and I know what toolkit we should be reaching for to address the problem. And on the policy side, that toolkit is to make greenhouse gases expensive. Around a lot of the world right now, it is completely free to put as many greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as you want. And it's really difficult to, to forbid them. Greenhouse gases come from almost everything that we human beings do. And every time we burn fossil fuels, we're generating greenhouse gases. It'd be really hard to say, okay, in three years, you just can't do that anymore. Our modern life and even prehistoric life would fall apart because we were all just burning things. So forbidding greenhouse gases is probably not feasible. But what we can do is make them expensive and ramp that cost up over time with these me tax mechanisms that we're talking about, and then watch the innovation happen. Watch all kinds of industries and companies come up with ways that they didn't know about, that nobody knew about, to make greenhouse total greenhouse gas emissions go down over time. You know, you talk about um, being a, a believer in capitalism and and in some ways th this idea that we are consuming less has really been because of capitalism. People are just kind of looking out for the bottom line. Um, and, yeah, exactly. And materials hit your bottom line. Right. I think the Trump administration would say they, too, are champions of capitalism. And we have seen years of rollbacks on methane, tailpipe emissions, um, hydrofluorocarbons, all sorts of things that had been more heavily regulated. Is that going in the right direction? No, it's going in exactly the wrong direction. And it brings up this important distinction between somebody who believes in, in the power of markets 
and a market zealot or a fundamentalist. I think a fundamentalist would believe that markets are so amazing that they take care of all of our problems for all time. No economist I know, no serious person I know believes that at all. And the first chapter of your Econ 101 textbook is about the power of markets to come up with stuff and, and to allocate goods and services in an economy. The second chapter of your Econ 101 textbook is about the failures of markets. And basically every subsequent chapter of your Econ 101 textbook is about the complications and the failures that come up. The first one that you learn about is pollution. Markets don't naturally solve pollution on their own. It's called an externality. It's the first kind of market failure that, failure that you learn about. And if I own a factory that sits by a river and you're, you live downstream of the river and I have no and, and there's no regulation in place, yeah, I'm going to pollute. Cleaning up would cost me money, and you're going to suffer as a result of that. So every Econ 101 textbook talks about this problem of pollution, and then spends a lot of time on the solutions to it. My grave difference of opinion with the Trump administration is they seem to think that we have overshot on pollution reduction, and they want to correct back in the greater pollution direction. I think that's a terrible, terrible idea. There's a lot of recent research about what happens to health outcomes, IQ outcomes, things that we care a lot about, even when we take our already pretty clean air and clean it up even more or clean up our water or get the lead out of the drinking water systems in cities, you just watch things still get better. So swinging back into greater pollution or, or letting more methane happen, uh, I think it's a terrible idea. That you, you have trouble making the argument that oil and gas companies are so strangled by regulation these days that they can't make any money. I, that just doesn't seem to work for me. And given the potency of these greenhouse gases, yes, we have to be vigilant. And yes, we have to increase monitoring and penalties. So when you sit back, in some ways you are telling this kind of very optimistic story and like, look, the market has worked and we're using less stuff, even without trying, who even knew? Um, do you feel optimistic or do you feel pessimistic? Because you also talked about like, yeah, but we're not really moving fast enough to deal with global warming. Yeah, there are two things I'm pessimistic about. One is th that we are cooking our planet and we are not doing the smart things that we know would help a lot to slow down and deal with cooking our planet. We're not reaching for the policy toolkit of pollution taxes. We're not nearly as fond of nuclear power as I think I sh we should be. So in the technology toolkit, we're leaving a really important tool out. The other thing that I'm pessimistic about is what you and I were just discussing, which is that there are people in communities that are getting left behind because of these deep structural changes in our economies. It's easiest to see in the rich world now. I don't think it's gonna be combined to the rich world and what we do about those people and communities getting left behind is going to be critically important. I don't think we're doing a lot of the right things yet. And more fundamentally, economists are a pretty confident group. You've had enough economists on the show to know when you ask them about the toolkit for dealing with communities and regions that get left behind economically, a lot of them will say, that toolkit is not very good. A lot of the things we try don't seem to work very well. We don't have an overabundance of good ideas. 
which is a pretty startling admission from from an economist in a lot of ways. And so we got to put our thinking caps on about how do we bring those regions, those communities back into economic vitality. I don't think they want handouts. I don't think they want a check from the government showing up every month. Uh, But I don't think that deaths of despair are magically going to solve themselves until these regions become economically healthier places. Andrew McAfee is the author of More From Less, the surprising story of how we learn to prosper using fewer resources and what happens next. This has been a blast. Thank you, Kara. And if you want to read more about something we touched on a bit, the idea that recycling, at least in one man's eyes, is not so great, We've got McAfee's logic for you at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Eleanor Ho. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI Public Radio International.